0: If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 5. I'll remind you right now that, as our, that our kids are heading out to children's church. If you are between birth and uh, second grade and you would like to go to children's church, they are on their way out the door, and that's actually in second grade, not still act like a second grader. Um, We're going to be looking at James chapter 5. We are going to be finishing our series in the book of James this month. Uh, We will will go through this month and wrap it up, and then in March we'll begin uh, a new study and and, and some new things. If you have read ahead, which I hope at some point you've kind of read ahead and looked at what was coming, you probably looked at our passage this morning and went, (laughs) good luck pastor. So with that in mind, thank you for standing in honor of the reading of God's word. We are going to be reading James chapter 5 verses 1 through 11. The word of God says this, it says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasures. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, which have been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting this has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your heart in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren. Against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the right, or excuse me, standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job, and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Please be seated. One of the benefits and challenges of, of going through a, a book of the Bible verse by f- verse is that we don't get to skip over hard passages. And you know, normally I would want to kind of do some story or some attention-grabbing thing to get your attention, but I feel like the passage was adequate enough in getting your attention, Amen. We don't always hear passages like this read in church, do we? In fact, to be honest, passages like this, we don't, we don't really get exposed to that often. We, we see passages like this in the Old Testament. It's not as uncommon, especially in the prophets, as they are warning Israel about the coming uh, judgment of God and, and those type of things. But in the New Testament, we don't hear talk like this that often. In fact, the closest we probably get to this is maybe one or two passages similar and and, and then beyond that it's Jesus and, and kind of the woe statements that that he has. And that means woe like like this is gonna be bad, not like woe, horsey. And so when we get to this passage, it is something that really grabs our attention. In fact, it is almost shocking to us to realize that this is something found in the New Testament. It begs a lot of questions, doesn't it? Does James hate rich people? Or worse, does God hate rich people? If so, what qualifies someone as a rich person? Does this mean that this person, that someone who is rich by, say, Kentucky standards? Or does this mean a rich person by North American standards or by just the West and Western standards? Or does this mean global by global standards those who are wealthy? Well, then what does that mean? The top 20%, which would include everyone in this room. The top 10%, 5%, 1%. Who is the rich people that James is writing to that God is communicating throughout the generations? It's hard to say. But maybe there's something else going on in this passage that that we need to see. Maybe James has a concern for the church, and indeed God has a concern for the church in, in, in a way that goes beyond just the label of you rich man. Maybe he's more concerned about the church and how it endures about how it treats others and also how it is treated? Could it be that James, and therefore God, as he is speaking through James, biggest concern is actually that we live with eternity in mind and that we love people no matter what? I want to challenge you today as we dive into this passage to look a little deeper into the text to see what James is condemning and also how he is encouraging the church. And in hopes that through that you'll be able to see maybe the areas of your life that that you need to make a change or that you need to be encouraged. So let's begin with these rich people. James 5.1 begins with these words. He says, come now, you rich. And then begins to, to give a judgment or an indictment against these rich people. Now, I will say for, for my study, it's not really clear whether he is talking about rich people that were within the church, that were part of the family of God, or if he is tar- talking about rich people that are outside of the church. Often when we look to the Old Testament prophecies, especially some of the judgment oracles that we might find in a place like Jeremiah, we see Jeremiah giving condemnation and judgment against places like Moab, even though Moab is probably not going to hear what he's saying. See, the purpose of that was not necessarily so that Moab would hear the, the, what Jeremiah or whomever had to say and, and repent, but so that the nation of Israel would, Israel would recognize that God was sovereign over all. And so there is a f- chance that his, his indictment against the wealthy, against the rich in James chapter 5 is meant for those people outside of the church body who've been oppressing the church. That's possible. But... In that same sense, so far the entire letter has been directed towards the church. And the, 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 the spread out church that James is addressing and encouraging throughout the, the whole letter, may, it may, this may be lumped up right up in there. Regardless, it is clear that James does not think that these rich people, the ones that he is addressing, are part of the kingdom. Because he he levels against them judgments that that imply that at the day of the Lord, things are going to be bad for them. As we look to the text, we see two major indictments against the rich. First, James accuses them of placing their trust and their confidence in wealth. If you look at the second part of verse 3, he says these words, he says, it is in the last days that you have stored up your treasures and this is undoubtedly a reference to some of the very words of jesus that we find in the gospels in fact in luke chapter 12 we read this parable from jesus he says some the the luke chapter 12 says this someone in the crowd said to jesus teacher tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me but he said to him man who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you then he stood and said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when, we, when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods and I will say to my soul, soul, you have made, you have many good things laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. So we see even in this same thing, that concept that we find in verse 3 of those who have stored up treasures for themselves. James testifies that their wealth will ultimately be their undoing. This is the place where they have put their trust. They have put their trust in their stuff. They have put their trust in their bank accounts. They have put their trust in their 401k or the property they own or the rental units they have. They have put all their trust in the things of this world. And they say, I know that no matter what happens, I'm going to be okay. Not because their trust is in the Lord, but because I've got this right here. I've got my IRA, I've got my 401k, I've got these things. And as long as I have these things, I know I'm going to be okay. And so I'm just going to live the good life and not worry about a thing. The reality is, as we look to the passage, that these things that they have placed their trust in Will actually be the very things that judge them. Look again at the text, I was struck by this, and he said he says, um, he said, Your riches have rotted and your garments become mothy, and your gold and your silver has rusted. Gold and silver doesn't rust. Think about that for a second. He's not actually talking about the age and the wear and tear of life. When he says your gold and silver has rusted, he is talking about something. He is talking about this day of the Lord. In the last days, even your gold and your silver will rust. And not only will they rust, but they will testify against you and they will consume your flesh like fire. In the last days. Those who have put their faith and their trust in the things of this world will see the things of this world, judge them, and condemn them. But there's one other accusation to the rich that I want you to notice today. Not only were the rich putting all of their faith in this world and in the things of this world, but then they used their wealth To leverage and to leverage themselves and oppress the poor. Look again at verse four. He says, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, and that which has been withheld by you cries out against you. See these wealthy people were not paying the wages that they were supposed to pay people. It was very common in this day and age for if you were a landowner and you had a lot of land, you couldn't work it. They didn't have combines. They didn't have all of the fancy tools that that Josh Dingus works with on a regular and has to repair throughout the winter. Um, He didn't have all that stuff. And so planting had to be done by hand and with animals. And it was long and it was tedious. And so what did you do? You hired people. And a lot of times you hired people by the day. And so you'd go out and you'd say, I need this many workers today to accomplish what I need to get accomplished today. One, two, three, four. And then you'd take those people and they would go spend the day working in your field. You hear parables about this in the, in the New Testament and Jesus. And then when the day was done, those people would come back to you and they would settle up. And you would say, okay, you worked for me today and, you, and we agreed to this much and you'd pay them. But what James is saying is these wealthy people were not doing that. When it was time to settle up and to pay the people for, for what they had done that day, he'd say, "Hey, I'll tell you what. Why don't you come back tomorrow? And or why don't I, I, I? I'll put this down in my books and I'll pay you when the crop comes in, and I'll I'll pay you when when I can. But you know, all of my all we'd say this today, all of my assets are are tied up right now, and I'm just not very liquid. But don't worry, I'll take care of you. Now the wealthy." We're not affected by this at all. Sure, they might one day make good on their payment. They may wait till the crops and, and all of those things and everything would be fine for them. And then they'd get to keep their money and, and use it and enjoy it until they absolutely had to pay the people. But for those who were living off of those day wages, it was a matter of life or death. Because they would take those wages and immediately go and buy food and the necessary items for their home or for their family. And so when they put in the work, but did not get to take home the the fruit or the the payment for their work, they came home to often wives and families and, and the people within their household with nothing. These people were using their place of privilege to keep people down to make sure that they remain dependent on them and to keep them weak verse 6 reveals the truth about what they were doing when he says that you have condemned and put to death the righteous man it probably goes along with reason that some of these people either starve to death or worse yet, their children starve to death because the rich held back their wages and could care less. And so James is, is looking at what they're doing and God is, is announcing this, this indictment. He's saying, listen, your behavior, the way that you have taken your money and used it to oppress the poor is leading to the death of some and you are guilty of their murder. See, when one person uses his wealth and privilege to take advantage of another, this is an offense to God, and it ought to be an offense to the church as well. And even in our modern age, we might see this play out using the legal system and and lawyers. You might see this play out in, in some sort of of nonsense in the workforce or using labor laws one way or another, but the reality still remains the same. When the wealthy use their wealth to keep the poor people poor, that is an offense to God. So much so that God sees the ultimate outcome of some of this as the death of an individual or a family. And their blood is on the hands. And and there is blood on the hands of the wealthy. That's a pretty shocking indictment. Both indictments are the result of the rich being completely focused on this life and not on eternity. And that's really what's going on behind all of this. Is when we, and when we see the world completely focused in on this world, And when we live only for the world and and for the pleasures that the world has to offer, we will often turn cold, selfish, and self-absorbed. Often we realize that this has very little to do with the money in, in our bank account and everything to do with the way our heart is. See, and I look at this passage and, and, and make no mistake when the de- time that James was writing this this was directly an indictment to these wealthy that were oppressing the poor that were living for this world. But when I look at our world today, it does not matter what your bank account says. When you are living for this world. And when when we are are so wrapped up in this world and what it has to offer that we find ourselves being uh, unkind and unloving, uncharitable, willing to to step on people in order to advance ourselves, we are guilty of the same things that James is speaking about in our passage. And we have to ask ourselves that question. This is not for you to look at anyone else in the room or or me, and I'm not looking and judging you, but we have to look at ourselves and say... Where's my focus? Am I am I so caught up in this world that I really don't care what happens to other people? Am I so caught up in this world that I don't really care how my actions affect other people? I really don't care what, what, what God may think about my behaviour and my actions in light of eternity, because I just want I just want to live right now. then that should be a call for us to repent. And I would dare say that along with that, when we look at this passage, that 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 should not only be a a wake-up call and a call for us to repent, but a a moment for us to really say, have I really placed my hope and trust in God? Have I really surrendered to Him completely? Because James implies through this passage that that, that these people are about to face the judgment of God. Am I going to face the judgment of God? From this, James leads to encouragement to the church. I want you to notice how, see how verse 1 starts with, Come now, you rich. But then verse 5 begins with this, Therefore be patient, brethren. I don't think that's an accident. Those outside of grace must wake up and recognize their need for repentance and faith. But those within the family of God, we are called to be patient in a fallen world with fallen systems. The word patient in the New Testament is, is a compound word that, that means to suffer long, to endure with, with enduring patience and enduring hardship while we wait for something else. This begs the question, what are we waiting for? And the passage tells us that it is the coming of the Lord. In fact, we even see this referenced in the first part of our passage where where James is speaking to the rich when he says, in the verse that we've already read, which is verse 3, it says, It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasures. See, the coming of the Lord or the, the day of the Lord was going to be a day of judgment to the rich who lived for this life only, but it was going to be a day of rejoicing for the church and the family of God. Jesus used the example of a farmer with his crops. Quite ironic since he had indicted the rich for mistreating those who worked in the fields. A farmer cannot rush his crops. And and we get a little clue in how, how agriculture probably worked in the Palestine area when he said there was the early rains and then there was the late rains. And you had to get your seeds in the ground before the early rains so that they could germinate and they could begin the process of growing. And then there might be a season where there's not a lot of water. And then came the late rains. And that was the one that really caused everything to spring up and be healthy. And there was no way to rush that. You had to wait on the Lord. And so as they would plant their crops, they would wait for the early rains, and then they would wait for the late rains, and there was nothing they could do to make that go any faster. They just had to trust that God was going to bring the crop. The same is true for us as well as we think about the day of the Lord. We have to trust God in the process that God is working in our lives and He is molding us and He is shaping us and He is causing us to grow, and we can't rush that. We have to trust Him. Peter talks about it when he says, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but He is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. James' encouragement is a reminder that we must endure this sinful world, but we can trust that God is accomplishing His perfect plan of redemption for all mankind. Our suffering links us to these great heroes of Scripture that we see mentioned. He talks about the prophets and how they were, they were persecuted and, and all the prophets were ultimately killed for proclaiming the word of God and yet they were blessed because of it. He points to Job as even Job did this morning. And that Job suffered and didn't know why he was suffering and it seemed, it seemed pointless that for him to endure such things and yet... God blessed Job for his faithfulness. Even Christ himself suffered. And he warned his disciples that they persecuted me, they will persecute you. I mentioned at the beginning of our time together that we as a church seem to be going through a lot. Some of you in this room have gone through and are going through a lot. You may have a lot of doubts. You may have a lot of questions. You may be dealing with loss. You may be looking to the future with uncertainty. This passage is meant to be a word of encouragement to remind us within the church that just as they endured hardship, we will endure hardship and be vindicated by the Lord. And that we look to the day of the Lord as a day of rejo- rejoicing. As the old hymn says, what a day of rejoicing that will be when we all see Jesus will sing and shout the victory. We go through trials. We see a world that is unjust and unfair, set up to to really not work for the benefit of others, but maybe to only work for the benefit of few. And we we need to speak out against that. And we have an obligation and a duty to seek justice in this world. But even in that, we remember that we are not of this world and that we have a, a future to look forward to. And that if we remain faithful and if the, that if we endure to the end, we will hear the words that Jesus spoke in His parable when He said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your Master. So how do you look upon the coming of the Lord? Do you view Christ's return as something that is far off that you don't need to worry about? Are you living for the now thinking that that that, that day is either far away or is never going to come at all? Have you focused your life and your energy in the the things of this world, and the pleasures of this world? Do you make your decisions based on those things? Are you willing to even take others down in order to raise yourself up? Or do you endure hardship looking forward to that day? Is your mind on eternity? Are you willing to patiently endure this life now because you are confident that a better life is coming? That's a question you have to answer. It's a question that I have to answer. I would challenge you today that if you, if you recognize in and of yourself that you are living for this world, and what this world has to offer to really ask yourself, have you surrendered your life to Christ? Have you trusted in Him completely? And if the answer is no, then we would challenge you this morning, let today be the day that you give your heart and your life to Jesus. Are you with us today and and you are longing and you are hoping for that day? This day of the Lord that the scriptures talk about. Then endure. Don't give up. For God is with you. And that day is coming. The scriptures talk of that day. And it says that on that day, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That there will no longer be death. There will no longer be mourning or crying or pain. That the first things have passed away. And behold, God is making all things new. If you want to be a part of that day, it comes only through a relationship with Jesus Christ. I want to take a couple minutes, Brittany, I want to explain to you what it means to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. And we have been teaching this the same way for a while, and we do that on purpose because we want you to know it. Not only so that you know it, but so that you can tell other people. And so when we talk about salvation here at Tunnel Hill Baptist Church, we want you to know first and foremost that God has a design that he has made you on purpose with a purpose that he created everything and when God created everything he said he said he looked at everything and he said it is very good. And so everything had a perfect a purpose and a plan and if we you and me could just do what God wants us to do all the time we'd be okay. But we can't in fact, not a single person in this room can do what God wants to do all the, all the time, every time, because every single one of us wants to, in some way, shape, or form, go do our own thing. And the Bible has a word for that, and that word is sin. And sin is when we do what we want to do, how we want to do it, when we want to do it, and we really don't care what God wants us to do. And sin takes us away from God's design, and it leads us to another place, which is called brokenness. If I try to use an iPad as a Frisbee, it's going to get broken. And when we try to create our own purpose and we try to create our own, our own design for ourselves, we're going to find ourselves in a place of brokenness as well. And boy, can we feel that brokenness. So the Bible says that for all, for all have sinned and, we, and fallen short of the glory of God and, and talks about how the wages of sin is death. And, and that's all wrapped up in that idea of brokenness. And we know what that feels like that we're not doing what we should be doing, that we are not the person that we ought to be, that we're not living up to our att- potential, that we're not being the, 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 the parent or the, the husband or the wife or the friend or the brother that, that we ought to be. That's brokenness. And boy, do we try to figure out ways to fix brokenness on our own. We think maybe if we're for smarter, we'll fix broken our brokenness. Or if we're successful, we'll fix our brokenness. Or maybe if I'm just really, really religious, then I'll fix my brokenness. But no matter what we do, we get down the road a little bit further and we recognize we're still broken. Because we can't fix brokenness from brokenness. And so we need something outside of our brokenness to step in. And that's where the good news of the gospel comes in. See, the good news of the gospel is that God loved the world so much that he sent his one and only son, that Jesus Christ came, that he lived the perfect life so that he could die a sacrificial death for you and for me. And he rose again three days later to give us new life. And that John 3, 16, I just started to quote said that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And that's what God is calling us to today and he's calling us to repent and believe. We see this in Romans ten nine, when it says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And so with that, the first thing we have to do is we have to believe that Jesus is the son of God, God in the flesh that he was sinlessly perfect, that he did die on a cross willingly, taking the, the, the punishment and the wrath of God upon himself so that he might hand over to us his righteousness. We have to believe that God raised him from the dead, showing his approval of that sacrifice. And then we have to confess Jesus as Lord, repenting of our sin and saying from this day forward, I'm going to follow Jesus and I'm not going to do it perfectly. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to get it down and I'm going to grow and I'm going to learn and I'm going to struggle and I'm going to endure. But from this day forward, my nose is pointed towards Jesus and I'm following him. The Bible says that if we repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, believe the gospel, then we will begin to recover and pursue God's design for our life. And that's wrapped up in our passage today. That we, as the, the, the body of Christ, the brethren, as James called it, we are called to, rep- rep- to pursue God's design. And then when we look at the rich and, and their mindset and, and, and what they think the world is about, we're to recover that for what truly is God's design. And so the question for us today is, what are we living for? And where are we on this picture? And if you're looking at this picture and you're saying to yourself, well, I I know I'm in that place of brokenness, that I'm still trying to do it on my own, I'm still trying to be religious enough, be good enough, I'm still living for this world and, and thinking that my solutions can be found in this world, my challenge for you today is what is preventing you from believing on the Lord Jesus Christ? And if the answer is nothing, then I want to invite you to come up front. I want to just have a conversation with you about what it means to make Jesus Christ your personal Lord and Savior. And I want to see the good news of the gospel through Christ Jesus to be that very thing that delivers you from your brokenness and brings you on to eternal life. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and King, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, so often we look to the scriptures and there are hard passages that say hard things, but even in the midst of all of that, we see the gospel shining through. And Lord, I don't know about everybody in this room, and I don't know if they see themselves in the camp of of the rich or if they see themselves in the camp uh, uh, of the brethren, but God, I know that every single one of us in this room has grace offered to us freely. And Lord, that you are calling all of us into a relationship with you and you are calling all of us to to put our hope and our trust in, in you through Christ Jesus and challenging us to live not for this world but to live for your kingdom and your glory. And so God, I pray that you would stir up in us a desire to pursue you. Lord, that we would run this race with endurance. And God, I know that there are are people in this room that need to, to, to start that run today. That they need to surrender their lives to you. That they need to trust in you. To recognize that the things of this world are passing away, but you will endure forever. And Lord, it is my plea and my prayer that you would send your spirit out, that you would convict them of of their sin, and Lord, that you would call them into a relationship with you. God, we praise you for passages like this that remind us that we may live in a fallen world with fallen systems, but that you are calling us to something greater. God, we thank you And Lord, we praise you for these things in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.